Okay, let's pray together. Father, Lord, we do come before you now, and we're so grateful that we can uh, come to you, Lord, um, uh, the God uh, who has chosen to reveal himself in the pages of Scripture, Lord, in the Old and New Testament. Lord, we thank you that you have um, given us such an abundant self-disclosure of who you are, what is your plan, what is your purpose, and how everything, Lord, ultimately culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, we just simply pray, God, that you would give us understanding into this great doctrine, this great study, this great uh, hermeneutic, this great uh, discipline of theology, which is known as biblical theology. Help us, give us a mind to understand. Help us to be good Bereans, Lord, just to uh, come to the scripture humbly and then to test and see if the things that are spoken are conforming to what your word declares, Lord. So, God, help us now. Give us all a mind and a heart to love you and serve you. As Scripture said, that we are to serve you with all our mind, all our heart, all our strength. Father, we give you all thanks in Christ's name. Amen. 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 So, that is the, the subject of our study today. Is You've heard me talk about biblical theology before. Um, we have to make a lot of sort of preliminary... Uh, observations about what we mean by biblical theology, of course, and we're going to get into a deep definition of what is biblical theology. Let me just uh, sort of set the stage by saying biblical theology uh, does not mean that your theology is biblical. (laughs) It doesn't mean that you have a sound theology, in other words. Somebody might say, well, you know, I hope my theology is biblical, right? Uh, But that is certainly not what we mean by biblical theology. Biblical theology is actually uh, a branch of theology. It's it's a discipline of theology. Just like systematic theology is a particular school of theology, biblical theology is another department of theology. Um, We've talked about the different types of theology that are out there, and we'll talk about these a little bit more in depth, but just real quick, just so you can kind of get your bearings Okay, we know that there is systematic theology, okay? There's systematic theology. What other types of theology is there? Covenant. Um, covenant theology, okay. Uh, that's interesting. I'm going to put a little asterisk by it, and I'll tell you why later. <laughs> okay, uh, uh, because covenant theology is kind of sort of subsumed under systematic theology. In other words, covenant <coughs> theology is kind of a topic under systematic theology. So, like, for example, we went through systematic theology, we taught Wayne Grudem, and one of the chapters that, or a couple of the chapters Grudem has is God's covenants with his people, okay? So it's part of systematic. So, but what else? Systematic theology, can anybody think of any other schools of systematic, or schools of theology? Historical. Historical, very good. Uh, Now, by historical theology, Chris, what do you mean? Uh, that which was passed down from the from the early church, what they gathered from scripture, uh, what's been passed down and what's been taught in the church. Okay, good. Yeah, so it's kind of like, church. it's kind of following uh, a theological development throughout the course of church history, right? And that's what historical theology is all about. So people go back to the patristics, they go back to the apostolic fathers, they go back to the Council of Nicaea, they go back to the medieval times, all these uh, different epics of church history, okay? What other kind of theology is there? Anybody know? Systematic theology, historical theology, Chris, can you think of one? Put you on the spot, since you're a pastor. Some people call it pastoral theology. 
Pastoral theology, uh, that's good, but again, I would put that under systematic theology. Okay? Yeah, because that would be uh, also pastoral or what they call practical theology, right? Theology that's applied. Um, so I'm thinking of uh, what's known as exegetical theology. Exegetical theology. So you can see from these theological camps, right, <coughs> that these are schools of theology. See what I'm saying? The person that's engaged in historical theology is not just worried about systematic theology. His view is what's going on throughout church history, right? Systematic theology is not concerned with historical theology primarily. Uh, They're concerned with how does uh, the Bible inform any given topic of theology. So it's more of a canonical study, meaning it's limited to the teaching of Scripture itself. Okay, so just, and then, of course, we add to this, biblical, right? Biblical theology. And uh, that's what we are really going to be looking at. Uh, What today is going to be is, today is going to be sort of an explanation. We could even say the, right, the why of biblical theology. Why is it important for us to do Biblical theology. Uh, why is it? Why is systematic theology not enough? Why do we need to go to biblical theology in addition to systematic theology? Why do we need to add that? And I'm going to have three or four different areas that I can think of right off the bat. Why we need to do biblical theology as well? And these are these are practical kind of observations, ministry, theology. Uh, ministry, theology, oh, hermeneutics, uh, hermeneutics, and then last of all is what I want to call uh, worship, okay, worship. Those are, that's kind of where we're going today, so why is biblical theology important? Well, because it affects your ministry, your theology, your hermeneutics, and your worship, Um, but first, First, because you're hearing me use the word biblical theology, I think it's important for us to begin to just get, at least give a simple definition of what biblical theology is, right? What is biblical theology? And let me just say that that's a challenging question, <laughs> right? If any of you have studied anything on biblical theology, I know Pastor Aaron is here from Mexico. Raise your hand, Aaron. You're a pastor, so you're, you're used to being pointed out and, you know, so you can't hide. Aaron is pastor in Querétaro, Mexico, and he's part of the whole movement that's going on. You probably wouldn't want to call it a movement, but, you know, the revival that God's doing in Mexico down there with, with him and uh, uh, Joseph Urban. And uh, what's so, what was so edifying to me about Aaron being here providentially on this Sunday is that I was going to begin uh, biblical theology. Well, Aaron, you know, and I, we were talking about just how beneficial biblical theology is. And uh, part of it, we were talking about different approaches, different methods, different ways of doing biblical theology. And so let me just take a stab at how do we define (laughs) biblical theology? Um, We can define it in this way. Biblical theology is... The study of God's unfolding mystery, or unfolding story, rather. That was the topic or the subject of a, or the title of a book, sorry. It is the study of God's unfolding story throughout redemptive history 
as it is revealed in Scripture's diversity and unity. So that's the, def- the working definition. Let me define it because Scott's giving me some dirty looks back there. So <laughs> let, me, let me try to break that down. It is the study of God's unfolding story. So what does that tell us? That God has a story to tell us in the Bible. Um, do you not know that the multi-billion dollar, dollar Hollywood industry is built on the back of the power of story? Right? If stories were not powerful, uh, ticket sales would not be what they are. Right? If we couldn't wait to hear Luke say, uh, you know, I'm your, you know, Darth Vader say to Luke Skywalker, I'm your father, right? Uh, right? That, that drama strikes us to the heart. And it's why? It's because it's telling us a dramatic story, a, a super dramatic story. And it is that drama that captivates our hearts. And there is the greatest story of all, the greatest story of all, is the story that God is telling, Right? So, so far, we're saying biblical theology has to do with God's story. But, so maybe I can write that down, right? As we are seeking to define biblical theology, the first thing we're saying is that it pertains to God's story. Um, The second thing that I have down here is that it is, that story is revealed throughout redemptive history. So, here we have redemptive history, okay? And at any point, please stop me. Please ask me uh, to define further or why or to elaborate on anything, okay? So, we have God revealing his story. How, How does he reveal that story? He reveals that story over the course of redemptive history. And so, what we're seeking to unravel is how does the progress of redemption in the Bible, how does that unfold God's story to us? That's basically what we're asking. Yes, sir? Does the systematic and historical theologies kind of overlap into biblical theology, would you say? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And the way that, the simplest way that I would maybe explain it Biblical theology is for the purpose of systematic theology. Biblical theology is sort of the foundation upon which systematic theology is built. Because one of the things that systematic theology does is, as you know, it takes a doctrine, okay, any doctrine, let's say, um, let's say the deity of Christ, and then it takes from the Bible and all the 66 books of the Bible, the sales are all books, and it seeks to pull from every section of the Bible to inform that one doctrine. You see what I'm saying? And so what they call this is proof texting. So you open up Wayne Grudem, and for the deity of Christ, he has this text and this text and this text and this text. But what systematic theology does not tell you is where does that proof text fit in the plan of God? Where does that proof text, what what significance does that proof text have in the great story of God? Some people call it the meta-narrative of Scripture. 
right? The overarching story of the Bible. Systematic theology is not going to tell you that. You have to go to biblical theology to lay the foundation, you know. So then biblical theology will define your systematic It is. It is the. Biblical theology is the foundation upon which systematic theology is built. So we do biblical theology in order to have a healthy, a healthy process of proof texting, so that we don't yank texts out of context. See what I'm saying? You all do this. This is the good news about it. Because right now some of you are like, I'm lost. Good thing I'm recording it here, I'm recording it here, and we're recording it back there. (laughs) So you can go back again, listen to it again, as you get more informed on this. But what you're going to find out, and this is what's so beautiful about it, is that what you're going to find is that we all do biblical theology, you just don't know it. Uh, The kids right now in Sunday school class down, down down the hallway here, our sister Amy has been teaching the kids biblical theology, believe it or not. She's way ahead of us. (laughs) The gospel project is biblical theology. That's what it is. It is seeking to find how the story of God leads to Christ at every stage of the story. You see? So, let let me go on with the definition. So, biblical theology is the the story of God as it unfolds throughout redemptive history. And then... Let me erase this. As, watch this now. As it is revealed, right? As it is revealed in Scripture. This is a very important part. We're going to get to this. So tomorrow, uh, next week, our entire time, we're going to be talking about this definition. That's what we're going to do all week next week is just focusing on not so much the why, right? But the what, of biblical theology. We're getting we're overlapping a little bit here today, but next week we're going to really jump into the definition of biblical theology and just really explore what have the great biblical theologians of the church said about their biblical theology. So, we're going to talk about what does GK Beale say? What does Gerhardus Voss say? What does Graham Goldsworthy say? What do some of these great biblical theologians what do they how do they define biblical theology and how have they they informed uh, the church? Um Let me tell you this, if you don't know this by now, biblical theology is sweeping the evangelical church, particularly the reformed evangelical church right now. How many of you guys know that? Or knew that? Or were (laughs) Aaron? Uh, Aaron was telling me that it's actually really growing in Mexico. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, yeah. um, Thanks to the the, the lessons of the academy that Joseph is doing, Mm -hmm. um, Many people are, are were part of the academy, and now it's open to everybody. But when we started, it was only for men, and many people from all over Latin America were were in, in, enrolled in the in the academy, and, and they were learning biblical theology. Joseph was teaching biblical theology. Um, he was giving an introduction to biblical theology. Yeah. <coughs> yeah, it's, it's growing. Um, a lot of people are are becoming aware of this. Right. That's right. And, and as we start developing, like, why this is important, next week we're going to get into the definition of it, right? And we're going to really start seeing why it's, you know, what, you know how that definition of biblical theology, every area that it affects, it's just, it's, just, um, it's really amazing uh, when you start diving into 
to biblical theology and, 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 and light bulbs start going off that you've never seen before. And you're just, you really stand in awe. And so it is, it is God's story as it unfolds in redemptive history, as it is revealed in Scripture. Now, this point is very important. Why? Because <clears throat> what is theology? Let me ask you all. Can you give me a definition of the word theology? Study of God. The study of God. Anybody else want to add to that? Yes, sir? Revelation of God by God. Revelation of God by God. Okay, I think you're adding a component that's very important. You're right. It is simply the study of God. But what biblical theology stresses is that theology, properly defined, is not simply God revealing himself for himself and of himself, but it is as God has revealed himself in Scripture. So we're limiting ourselves to supernatural revelation. As a matter of fact, one great uh, biblical theologian, Gerhardus Voss, who you will hear me quote quite a bit, who's also known sort of as the, uh, the modern founder of the biblical theology movement, of course, he, was, he lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, he, he was a famous professor from Princeton, and who he ultimately become, became the mentor of a lot of people that you might recognize, like Cornelius Van Til. Uh, he became the mentor of um, John Murray. Uh, he, became, he was a contemporary of Her, uh, Herman Babink. Um, so very, very influential teacher anyway. Um, so he makes a point to say, look, we have to limit ourselves to the study of God in Scripture. Now, to us, it may not have the same weight that it did for him because what he was battling was a, a liberalism, a liberalism that undermined the historical reliability of the Bible. Right? So in the, in the, in the late um, 1800s uh, with uh, McChain and uh, later with uh, J. Gretchen Machen, these are just names that are, look them up in church history, but these men fought the liberalism that emerged in the 1800s, mainly coming out of Germany, that really undermined the historical sufficiency of the Bible. And uh, what, they, what they sought to say is that, well, the Bible just doesn't, the Bible is not a reliable historical guide. We need to go outside of the Bible to the history of humanities that is found in <coughs> secular historians. You see that? But that is not what biblical theology is concerned with. It is not simply telling us the story of humanity and how it developed. What is biblical theology telling us? It is telling us the story of God. Amen. Right? God's story. And history, my dear friends, history is not just, the Bible is not just giving us, you know, an option to Time magazine and their history. Right? <laughs> right? With different, like you know, classic scenes that you might see the challenger exploding, right? The Bible is following the redemptive history of the people of God as it, as, as it unfolds throughout different epics and different times and different uh, periods of history like uh, the Noahic period, the patriarch, patriarch uh, I, I can't say the word. Patriarchal? There you go. Patriarchal period. The Mosaic period, the Davidic period, the period of Babylonian captivity, exile, 
the, the, the birth of Jesus, the acts of the apostles. You see what I'm saying? These are the epics that God is really concerned with. God is not interested in chronicling for us, you know, the history of the Canaanites. That's not what he cares about. <laughs> he, because his supreme concern is his story. Don't you think God could have left us a huge volume on the history of humanity? He could have. But he left us one book of history that follows his story. Right? Question. Uh, we're going through systematic. We had Grudem book. Mm-hmm. Is there any <clears throat> supplemental... Books. There is, as a matter of fact, there is. Let me give you one, uh, one in particular. It's by Michael Lawrence. Uh, since you asked, I don't know if you're ready to write this down, but Michael Lawrence has a book. Michael Lawrence is an elder at Capitol Hill with Mark Dever. I don't know if you guys know that. Uh, his book is entitled Biblical Theology in the Life of the Church, a guide for ministry. So uh, that's a very manageable, practical uh, beginning point for biblical theology. I found it to be very practical. I quote it in my notes and stuff like that. So um, that's a good place to start. Also, also, you want to fall in love with biblical theology. What book am I going to reference? Anybody know? No? No? I thought you guys knew me better than that. Chris, any idea what book? you alluded to it earlier when you accidentally yeah, that's right. The Unfolding Mystery by Edmund Clowney. Uh, please uh, re- get that book, read that book, snuggle up with a cup of coffee, and however it is that you snuggle up, and, uh, and, and read that book, The Unfolding Mystery by Edmund Clowney. I tell you, when I read that book, probably, gee, maybe seven years ago, I was struck by everything I'd been missing. <laughs> you know, it's just like... I've been missing it. And uh, we do some of it at the Emmaus Conference as we look at Christ in the Old Testament. But uh, really, you remember what happened on the Emmaus Road, right? On the Emmaus Road, the, uh, the disciples encountered Christ, and it says that Christ began to explain to them all of the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures, starting beginning with Moses and the law and the prophets, right? He begins to expound to them all the scriptures concerning himself. And what happened to the disciples? Their hearts were burning within them. In other words, Jesus opened up the word of God to them in such a way that they literally stood in awe. They were struck. They had missed it. How do you know they missed it? Because they were hopeless. Remember? He finds them and they're moping. Haven't you heard what's going on around here? You know, Jesus of Nazareth, we thought he was the hope of Israel. And he's like, oh, disciples, right? Don't you know everything that was written about me in the law, the prophets and the Psalms? You see what I'm saying? And so you get on that Emmaus road with Christ and Edmund Clowney does a fantastic job of showing us that. Let's finish up the definition, okay? Not only is it... God's story, uh, not only is it God's story as it unfolds in redemptive history, and not, not only is it as it is revealed in Scripture, but as it is revealed in Scripture's, what did I say? <clears throat> Unity and diversity. Right? Unity and diversity. Uh, this is important. This is 
Um, if you want to know what keeps theologians up at night, racking their brain and you know scratching their heads, is how do we approach the unity and the diversity of Scripture? Who can doubt that there is major diversity in Scripture? Right? There's lots of uh, there's lots of segments in the Bible. There's lots of uh, compartmentalization going on in the Bible. Right? Uh, what covenant are you in right now? Uh, because you're in the New Covenant, a concept like circumcision has gone from the Old Covenant where it would say something like, if you do not obey the law of circumcision, you will be cut off from the covenant. Now fast forward to the New Covenant. Paul says in Galatians, I think it's Galatians chapter 4, If you receive circumcision, you have fallen from grace. Wow. Same Bible. Because you're in a different covenant, that idea, that doctrine, (coughs) that principle, that ritual takes on totally different significance for the new covenant believer. You see? And so that's part of it. So we have to understand the unity and the diversity of the Bible. Now, I don't know how we're going to do all this. Everybody got this? Any more questions on this? Any more questions on this? Uh, Next week, Lord willing, we're going to really, really tackle um, the definition. We're going to get way deeper into the definition of biblical theology so that I hope by the time you walk out of here, you're going to know what biblical theology is and what it is not. Okay? Um, Now, let me just get back to the practical points I made here. Why is it important? It's important for ministry. Let me um, let me read to you what um, let me read to you what Michael Lawrence said in the introduction of his book. He says, "Learning how to do biblical theology is no mere academic exercise. It is vital for your work as a pastor or a church leader. It shapes your preaching. It shapes your counseling, your evangelizing, your ability to engage wisely with the culture, and more. You will not be a very good theologian." which means you will not be a very good pastor if you do not learn how to do biblical theology. Uh, And I could not agree with him more. I I literally could not agree with him more. So um, it's important for, for ministry, I mean, how we conduct ourselves in the ministry. But it also is important for our theology, obviously. Obviously, it informs our theology, and we've talked about the difference between systematic theology and biblical theology, but it informs how we take any text of the Bible and bring a biblical theology to bear upon the text. Turn with me in your Bibles. You're probably waiting. When are we going to get to the Bible around here? You know that we get to the Bible around here. Uh, Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 46. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 26. Let me pick this up because I remember an interview that a liberal professor that some of you might know by the name of Bart Ehrman. How many of you know that name? How many of you guys know that name, Bart Ehrman? Quite a few of you. Wow. Bart Ehrman is a very, a very uh, influential, a very loud voice of liberalism today. He's an apostate that left the Christian church and now denies the reliability of the Bible. And he's a textual critic who studied under Bruce Metzger, who is probably the most renowned textual critic 
of all time. Um, that's what makes them so dangerous. Okay. Matter of fact, when I was doing textual criticism in my Greek class, we had to read the fourth edition of uh, Metzger and Bart Ehrman before he apostatized. Uh, now that he apostatized, I could never, ever recommend you know, um, his scholarship. But look at this text here, uh, verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. You guys know the circumstances here, right? He's on the cross, and, and he cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what Bart Ehrman said about this passage of Scripture? He said, when you look at the parallel passages in the Gospels, in other, other Gospels, Jesus is saying, um, you know, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Right? Quoting that textual variant. Here, Ehrman says, he's saying, my God, my God, you know, where have you forsaken me? And the way that he interpreted was, Jesus sounds confused on the cross. He's conflicted. He doesn't know where God is. Is that really what's going on here? No. Right? So if we do a biblical theology of the text, I tell you what it reveals is absolutely amazing. What does it reveal? <clears throat> think, think, just think in your mind from a, from a theological point of view. What is Jesus doing on the cross? Anybody want to take a stab at it? Yes, sir. So he's quoting a psalm, Psalm 22, and you're saying he's what? It's, and he's fulfilling, in essence, that, that prophecy, in sense, from quoting from there. Okay, how, okay, now that we know he's fulfilling that prophecy, but what does it mean? Bearing the wrath of God. Bearing the wrath of God. Our sin is imputed to him. Our sin is imputed to him. Is there anywhere else where the psalm, this psalm, Psalm 22, is there anywhere else where the New Testament authors use it? It is used in Hebrews chapter 2. So if you look over to Hebrews chapter 2, this is where biblical theology begins to inform us, right? So, for example, Landon, you mentioned propitiation, right? Bearing the wrath of God. And so systematic theology will take that proof text and say, see, that proof text shows Jesus was suffering under the wrath of God. But that's all the systematic theology typically will give you about that text, right? It will not continue to inform the text from a biblical theology perspective. But if you go to Hebrews chapter 2, the amazing thing is in Hebrews chapter 2, let me ask you this. In Hebrews chapter 2, is, is Psalm 22, beginning in verse 11, is Psalm 22 being used to prove propitiation? For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Where's the propitiation? Because he says, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. The biblical theologians ask, where did Jesus fulfill that? He fulfilled it already on the cross. When he quoted Psalm 22 on the cross, as we saw in Matthew 27, right? What was he doing? According to this, he was proclaiming God's name in the midst of the congregation. Jesus was singing in the midst of his brethren. Why? 
Because what Hebrews here is trying to emphasize is not propitiation. What Hebrews is trying to emphasize is Jesus stood in solidarity with us. He is one of us. Go back to, go back to chapter 2, verse 5. He did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, What is man? That you remember him. And so right there begins the need for the Messiah, for the high priest, to be a man. Because just as our high priest was humbled and crushed and then exalted, what the solidarity of the Messiah with his people tells us is that we too, though we may be crushed, we will be vindicated. It gets deeper than that. Because if you look at what Hebrews is doing, look at verse 13. And again, <laughs> and again, he quotes this, this verse now. I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom he has given me. Now what's he quoting? You see the cross-references, right? What's he quoting there? Isaiah chapter 8. What in the world does Isaiah chapter 8 have to do with Psalm 22? Anything? Yes, it does. Because in Isaiah chapter 8, guess what the messenger, the prophet of the Lord is saying? What he's saying is that he will be vindicated with the remnant that God delivers. So Psalm 22 is telling us that Jesus stands in perfect solidarity with his people. That he, how does he prove that? Because he sung in the midst of the congregation of God's people. Where does he sing? On the cross. On the cross. And what does Isaiah add to the equation? The one who was crushed on the cross will also be vindicated by God because he trusted in him. That's what biblical theology can give you. That's not what systematic theology can give you. And usually does not. So that's just kind of a slice, right, of how one verse is informed by biblical theology. Because we went back to its redemptive historical position and we saw its significance canonically in the scriptures. And then we also understood both the unity and the diversity of scripture, right? How Psalm 22 and Isaiah chapter 8 and Hebrews chapter 2 Matthew chapter 27, all, though they are different and come from different epics, different covenants, different periods of time and redemptive history, still contribute to the overall unity of the message. Any questions? Basically, so you're not saying, so, okay. So you're saying... You should know this, Trish. We talk about this all the time. You know the part, you know the part where, you know, when Jesus says, call the forgiveness. Are you just saying all of that was like almost like a psalm, like a proclamation? What I'm saying is that in, 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 
in Matthew 27, when Jesus is quoting that verse, he's quoting Psalm 22, not because he's conflicted or because he's confused about what's happening to him, and he's crying out, God, where are you, as if he doesn't know. He's citing a scripture that was foreordained for him to cite. Why? Why, why, why? But why? Just because, just to show, you know, let's think about apologetics, just to show the high probability of, right, the, the fact that Jesus had to fulfill 300 prophecies and, you know, you got the quarters on the state of Texas and turn one over and that's the probability of, no, 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 no. No. <laughs> it's because he's trying to show us that there's a theology, that he's doing something along a biblical theological line. Mm-hmm. And what he's doing is he, is he is fulfilling the fact that he had to, in order to fulfill that prophecy, he had to stand in solidarity with his people. He had to sing in the midst of his congregation. And in doing that, guess what? He, he, he was partaking of our humanness, and we will partake of his vindication, as Psalm, uh, Isaiah 8 tells us. This is just a cra- scratch the surface. The wonder of biblical theology and what makes biblical theologians weep mm-hmm. is that when you get to certain insights like this and you realize, I just scratched the surface. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because Isaiah 8 is talking about this too. And you go to what Isaiah 8 is talking about. Oh, this goes back to the servant of the Lord. Well, this is the servant of the Lord that is identifying with us who will bear the wrath of God and who will divide the booty with the strong who will be raised again. You see what I'm saying? And you just stand overwhelmed, wave after wave, breaker after breaker of the, of the story of God unfolding before your very eyes. I mean, to me, it, just, it gives me goosebumps, right? Okay, so enough with the goosebumps. Let's... Uh, <laughs> let, yeah, let's finish up with, with, with um, try to, hermeneutics and worship. Why is biblical theology important? Well, because it informs your hermeneutic. Let me give you just some practical reasons why, okay? What biblical theology will, t- will tell you is that, and, and just, uh, you know, if you guys want to question me or challenge me on this or ask questions about this point, but what it really does, at least what it did for me, is that it gets you to see that all of Scripture is Christian Scripture. Uh, for a long time, I had a, in my, somehow, maybe because of the influence of dispensationalism, but I had this idea of the Bible that, well, the old is old, and the new is true. <laughs> right? it, 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 you have this estimation that the Old Testament is somehow outdated, outmoded, and therefore, practically speaking, it becomes irrelevant. It doesn't have any real practical use in your life day to day. Because after all, I mean, you turn to Leviticus and all the stipulations on how to cleanse your house after leprosy and all of that, and you're like, okay, I'm just trying to get to work. I mean, I don't know, what does that have to do with me? See what I'm saying? But what biblical theology does is it shows us that the whole... Bible is Christian scripture because just like we extrapolated the prophecy of Psalm 22, when we, when we begin to extrapolate and extrapolate and work out and work out the theology of what does it mean to be sanctified? What does it mean to be holy before our God? Why is it that Peter quotes Leviticus when he's trying to make the people of God in the new covenant holy? Doesn't he know Leviticus is like the most boring book of the Bible? No, he does not know that. (laughs) And would not agree with that. 
You know, it's like the president said one time, right, talking about homosexuality. He said, what are they going to do? Quote Leviticus? Yes, Mr. President, we will quote, quote Leviticus, you know. Too bad you don't know any biblical theology or it would help you, you know, type of thing. Okay, so it, it helps us to see that all of Scripture is Christian Scripture. In other, words, in other words, it is all for you. Talk about Leviticus. Let's go there. Leviticus chapter 1. Just, just to make it... You know, just kind of a sampling, uh, how to make it practical type of thing, okay? We don't have a whole lot of time, but uh, Leviticus chapter 1, I tell you, I mean, would, wouldn't you agree that for you, like one of the most precious doctrines of, of, of the Christian faith is soteriology and maybe a doctrine like propitiation, maybe a doctrine like justification, right? Those doctrines, I mean, are really... Uh, justification, I mean, especially if you're reformed, right? The doctrine of justification by faith alone, sola fide, you know, the whole thing. Well, Leviticus chapter 1 is real big on that. You can preach a whole message, my dear friends. You can do a whole Bible study. You can teach a whole Sunday school lesson on Leviticus chapter 1. Because look at, look at beginning of verse 1. Then the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd of the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the door of the tent of meeting. This is the all-important statement. So that he may be accepted before the Lord. <clears throat> The concept of being accepted before the Lord is probably the most important concept in the book of Galatians. Galatians is all about being justified before the Lord in the sight of God. But where does that language of Paul come from? Does Paul just make it up? <laughs> right? No, it comes from Leviticus. It comes from the Old Testament that tells us what we must be if we're going to be accepted before the Lord, we have to have our sins atoned for. We must be cleansed. We must be sanctified. We need to have an atoning sacrifice. You see how? Right? So, um, that's right. The other, the other beautiful thing, and, and it's part of it too, but we already talked about the unity. But part of the hermeneutical importance of biblical theology is that it tells us something about the organic unity of the Bible. The whole Bible, we should as Christians, we should, our hearts should just really uh, just rise in this because the whole Bible is connected. It is an organically connected book. Every part of the book has some ramification for another part of the book. You see, God did not, and this is where sometimes our theology is very, um, you know, is very Marcion, right? Marcion was, Marcius was a, uh, you know, he was a heretic of, I think, the third century that believed that the Old Testament had an evil God, judgmental God, a bad God, and the New Testament had a loving God, a good God, you know? Um, and, 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 and so that led him to great theological error, you know? And, and, and so this is like the opposite of that. This is telling us, no, 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 the whole Bible is connected. Like Legos, it all goes like a puzzle. It all goes together. It has to go together, right? Um, and we're, we're going to spend a lot of time looking at that. Um, 
The other thing is that it helps us to see that all scripture is bound to the plan of redemption. The plan of redemption. That God is working out everything according to his marvelous plan. In the lady study, we talked about the Great Commission. And um, one of the things that I try to point out in the book, Convert, is that when a person gets saved, it's a lot more than just an individual religious thing has happened. Right? I don't know how long it took me to kind of get that. That when I got saved, it's a lot more than just a religious thing happened to a 19-year-old Mexican guy at the corner of his bed at whatever time at night, right? And that he became religious, right? It is that I was brought into the stream of God's redemptive plan for the world. And, And what is that plan? Well, the plan is that he's making a new humanity in Jesus Christ, comprised of Jew, Gentile, male, female, bond and free, slave, Scythian, barbarian, right? In which there is no distinction. We are all one in him. This is a new humanity, a new race, a new nation that he is building in Jesus Christ. Uh, That's what, you know, biblical theology helps us to do too, is to recognize that everything is bound to this plan of redemption. And then the other thing that biblical theology helps us to see, and I'll point this out in terms of hermeneutics, because we're going to take a very Christocentric hermeneutic to biblical theology. That is to say, any topic of the Bible, any topic of the Old Testament, for example, has some sort of Christocentric thrust. In other words, it's Christ-centered. It's about Christ. Uh, And you know the Bible is telling you to do that. (laughs) Because of places like Luke 24, 1 Peter chapter 1, Many, many, many. John chapter five. Jesus says the scriptures testify, you know, testify to me, and uh, all the different texts that show us how to do uh, Christ-centered hermeneutics. So that is also a big part of it. Um, any other questions, comments, statements? Yes, sir. Uh, just kind of speaking to the unity of scripture, mm-hmm. um, and you alluded to the dispensational error. <laughs> Uh, I definitely see that for sure. And when I came to the understanding that the Bible is united, there's, yeah. if there's no division in that sense, yeah. it really did open my heart up to a better and also to more deep worship, which I'm in. Oh, that's my last one, yeah. You're stealing my thunder now. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. My thunder's not going to be that impressive. we got a minute. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I just, that's one thing uh, that I'm really looking forward to and it's the same the true unity of the scripture and the true unchangeableness of God yes. revealed in the scripture. Yeah, that's right. And when I talk about worship, it affects our worship. The reason I'm saying that is not just because it's kind of like a nice ending point on a Bible study, but because when you read the Psalms, you find it in the prophets, you find it, you find it in the historical books of the Bible, like Chronicles, when, when, when the the prophets and the priests and the people of God are rousing the people to worship God. I can show you verse after verse after verse after verse where what they say is, recount the deeds of the Lord. Tell of his wonderful works, his mighty deeds. And a lot of times they go back and they reflect on the exodus. The, the, the judgments, the plagues, the deliverance, the parting of the Red Sea. 
these historical events in the Bible were meant to cause the people to soar in worship of their of their God because they saw the redemptive historical unfolding of the purpose of God on planet Earth. And it's all connected. Who did that? I mean, who, who in the Bible can you think about that really uh, to explain to explain who Jesus was felt the need to have to give us a whole history of the Bible? Stephen. Stephen. Acts chapter seven. How does Stephen arrive at Jesus's messianic? kingdom and his reign he arrives there by going back to Abraham he starts with Abraham 50 verses later he gets to Christ and what he was saying was look at what God has done if you don't acknowledge Jesus as the Christ what he's saying is you are out of step with God's redemptive historical plan so, anyway, like, man, you know, I could talk about all this all day, but then I'll get in trouble. So, we better. Any other questions, last comments, statements, right? We today are really just mainly focusing on why is it important. Hopefully, we saw just a little bit of that. Um, next week, Lord willing, we're going to get into the what of biblical theology. What is it? So, we're going to start really getting specific about defining, you know, uh, what it is exactly. Anyway, let's pray and go. Father, Lord, thank you again for this time. Lord, bless our worship, O God. Have all these themes in our heart when we lift up our voices to you in praise. Lord, give us a heart, give us a mind to recount, to remember the great and mighty deeds of our God and how those, those deeds ultimately climaxed in the cross of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.